I'm Mary Edwards, and this is Notes Between Sessions, conversations that explore the essence and impetus of the creative process and anything else in between. Episode 1, The Future Present, Eleanor Sandresky. Picture this. Nighttime, the early 1970s. I'm in my own mid-century modern meets futuristic existence, imaginatively recasting my own family in Lost in Space as we sit around the faux walnut-finished kitchen table after dinner. As we're talking, my young eyes dripped upwards towards the circular fluorescent lighting fixture in the center of our kitchen ceiling. The metallic crown appears dark, so I can only surmise, disregarding that there is another floor above us, that there is a portal to the night sky, and that we're plotting an intergalactic adventure based on where the stars align. It was only because of the bright light surrounding that the chrome seemed to open up something infinite. But I discovered some time later, when my imagination was less fertile, that the fixture was actually a reflective surface, and once I saw myself in it, all disbelief was no longer suspended. Present day, 2020. I wonder for those of us who've been around for at least a handful of decades, if this is how we envision the future. Is the future as we know it now a representation of what we imagined it would be like in our past? What worked for us then? That sustains purpose. How do we take up space differently now than we did in the past? And how do we do that in relation to sound and music? Late in 2019, what would be just a few months prior to the world coming to a social shift due to our global health crisis, I had the absolute pleasure of attending Eleanor Sandresky's solo performance of Strange Energies a set of etudes as part of the modern piano series at Spectrum Brooklyn, while experiencing one piece in particular called What's Left, I found myself visualizing an architectural phenomenon. Her music evokes a spatial awareness and that a structure seemed to form out of thin air. Note for note, the imaginings of a sonic blueprint materialized with the instantaneous vertical and horizontal movement of textures strategically being hoisted into place. Eleanor Sandresky was building with sound, emulating all the traditional materials one would use for a home, even offering a micro glimpse of a gleam, right down to the shine of a nail head. Was it a restoration or a new build reminiscent and equivalent of a mid-century Beverly David Thorne or even a Richard Neutra? In any event, it was hauntingly restorative, yet modern, and kinetically rich. It's no surprise that Eleanor Sandresky, whose music is heard around the world, including the Cannes Film Festival, has been dubbed a piano goddess by Arts Houston. Working at the forefront of avant-garde concert as theater, Eleanor reinvented herself as the choreographic pianist with her groundbreaking composition, A Sleeper's Notebook. In these works, she explores her deep interest in how motion translates to emotion 
through sound. She's also the inventor of the Wonder Suit, a remote set of wireless sensors worn and used to trigger sonic events during live performance. These events range from discrete processes to surface manipulations of the pitches and build on the concept and ideas in her choreographed works, including a space odyssey. Eleanor has also performed live to film the groundbreaking Katsi trilogy. This episode comes to you from the Leonard Bernstein office, where we briefly learn about Eleanor Sandreski's role here before discussing the scope and process of her most recent recordings, performances, and works. Eleanor, what do you do here? I am the producer of film and live orchestra shows. Um, Leonard Bernstein wrote two film scores. Uh, On the Waterfront is the only dedicated film score he wrote, and then West Side Story, which is, of course, the classic musical that was filmed in 1961 by MGM. So we have those two films that we take around the world to various orchestras, and they show the film and play the music live, playing live to film. And, uh, and then I had also been asked to step in as conductor a few times on projects with the Glass Ensemble, and so I had a very clear understanding of how that works and what the experience is from the player's perspective and from the conductor's perspective. What I didn't really have experience with was the production side so much. And then, of course, when you're talking about a symphony orchestra, that's a whole other level. Um, but to to make a long story short, they um, they said, oh, well, please help us do this. And, and so we called our friends at uh, IMGA, who have a lot of experience with this, uh, Steve Linder in particular, and he helped us to shepherd the project through, and yeah, it's been going ever since. We've, we premiered it at Hollywood Bowl in 2011. That was hugely exciting. And um, yeah, it continues to be a big hit. So that's a tremendous thrill for me. And, and you know, I feel like I go to orchestra school every time I go out on the road with that show. <laughs> Working with different conductors, different orchestras, different management styles. You know, you just never know quite what you're going to get so uh, it's pretty fun in essence it's a built-in learning experience well isn't everything right (laughs) (laughs) i'm excited because you're going to be releasing your strange energies album let's talk about that i would love to talk about that Um, strange energies is a set of eight pieces um for solo piano there are etudes um, that explore sound there are etudes in the sense that uh, I'm studying the way sound behaves in certain ways, how it responds, how the piano responds, how the instrument resonates in certain ways, um, how that changes from space to space. Um, And that's not different from how any other music works. It's just that these pieces ask you to listen very intentionally to certain things. So I paired these pieces with four etudes by Philip Glass, my longtime colleague uh, and mentor. So it makes a nice mix of energies. When I saw you, and I'm guessing now this was January when you were at Spectrum? December. Gosh, it was last year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See how time flies. Welcome to 2020. So, exactly. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. I'm late. Um, so it, I guess this was the end of December. 
that I saw you because it was it was so seamless to January. That's why I thought. Yeah, it was actually before Christmas. So uh, when I attended, I I was really mesmerized by all of your works, but one piece in particular, "What's Left." Uh, it it left me with uh, an architectural comparison. I was thinking of music in an architectural way, and I had this visceral response to. Um, the piece itself. I imagined a blueprint sort of bursting open, giving me, you know, detail for detail, note for note. And it reminded me of a sort of mid-century modern structure in that it was, there was a lot of precision to it and there was a lot of openness to it. I think that's a fair, um, a fair comparison. Um, there is a very tight structure, um, but that the notes that are played in that tight structure are allowed to resonate as long as they want, they until it runs out, really. And then um, the parts that move forward, that sort of link the two highly structured sections, or the three highly structured sections together. So there are these sort of pathways and those you play straight through, but the, the sections that are really um, highly structured, those are quite variable in length because it depends on how long the note resonates on the individual piano in the individual space with a certain attack. Um, it, it created this translation of um, suspensions, beams, uh, right down to uh, particular details of of a built structure. I like things that have form, that have a clear form, especially in a piece which can seem wandering. Um, I think it's particularly important. Um, you need to give the audience a way to grasp onto what you're doing. Um, you don't have, they don't have to get it right away but they do eventually need to have some sense of they know what's happening. Even if they don't really understand what you're doing, that's fine. But it gives, um, I think it helps the shape. It helps um, guide, it's, it's like, a, it's a very um, important guide, especially in these very uh, strange, and uncertain pieces where you know you're just waiting for a note to die away before the next one comes people get very uncomfortable sometimes in that situation i've had people start to laugh um they do you know they just don't know what to do um so you know that audience at spectrum was you guys were particularly wonderful you're very attentive and open to whatever i was doing um, but it's not always like that, right? right. You know. <laughs> and the space itself at, at the Spectrum is very improvisational. I mean, right down to the lighting. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It could be a little less improvised for right. my taste. But... <laughs> but you did well. You did very well Thank with that. You. Well, they, they, they tried their best for me. When I heard you initially at Spectrum, um, Spectrum is, as I had mentioned once before, is a former ball bearing factory. So it really lent itself to this improvisational space. And then I saw you not too long after that at the Met, which is a little bit more of a programmatic space. 
So, in terms of the, the differences in those environments? Well, I mean, the Metropolitan Museum of Art bar on the second floor, that's what you're talking about, yes. the cafe, um, which is a really fun place to play. It's, it's a very energetic vibe, lots of people coming and going. Um, the goals are quite different <laughs> when you play in a space like that. Um, than they are when you play in a space like Spectrum, which is not that it can't be fun, but that, you know, the audience comes there specifically to hear you perform at, at Spectrum. But at the Met, they're there for the art. You're there to provide another level of artistic experience, but it's not the main reason they came. So, uh, and it's also, they're serving drinks and food and all this other stuff. So there's a lot of distraction. People are talking. Um, the goal there is to uh, follow the brief, which they give you. Um, and that particular weekend was the weekend before Christmas. So we felt compelled to, you know, do a little holiday vibe which was super fun and extra fun. Um, I had never done anything like that before. Uh, you know, I never played, I was never in a, a club date band or anything like that. So, um, so that was really fun. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's a group called The Gathering and we play all kinds of, you know, contemporary chamber music, really mid to late 20th century and anything new. And that's Frank Cassara on percussion, Margaret Lancaster on flute, and Ralph Ferris on viola. They were lovely. I wanted to talk a little bit about your process around um, some of your pieces. Speaking of art, this is a music as art or sound as art. You are the inventor of something called the Wonder Suit. <laughs> Indeed, I am. <laughs> um. Yeah, so the Wonder Suit is a set of sensors that I wear um, on a custom-designed suit, in quotes. Um, it's not really a suit, it's, it straps onto whatever clothes you're wearing. So um, I just call it a suit because I feel like I'm putting on a, almost a persona even by strapping on this this robotic kind of thing. It has, um, um, oh, what's that word? The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, yes, bionic. Bionic, mm -hmm. yes. It has a bionic quality about it um, because you are controlling things that are machines. And so the idea is um, that I have a microphone on the piano that's picking up whatever I play there, sending it to the computer, and then I'm live processing it through movement. And the different sensors I'm wearing are accelerometers, potentiometers, pressure sensors, uh, things like that. You and I were talking some time ago about the, the process in assembling the suit, and you had gone to um, were they manufacturers in Germany? No, I went to a, a, 
an electronic music center in Amsterdam called Stime. Mm -hmm. And uh, they earned, uh, you know, the new music center, <clears throat> excuse me, there. And they host and they host a residency program where people, composers can come and um, try things out, experiment, um, build things, or try to build things. Um, they encouraged you to try to manu uh, manufacture but assemble it yourself. They tried, right? yeah, they, they told me, they convinced me actually that I should try to build it myself. Um, and I'm not sure that they actually thought that I would be able to do it, but I think in retrospect that the goal was for me to get me to just understand more about what it is that I wanted to do, to just give me some sort of engineering know-how even though I'm not an engineer and I'm not interested in being an engineer, I ended up hiring an engineer to build it for me. Do you remember any of your learning outcomes from that experience? Anything particular that stands out from trying? Well, I, I learned about sensors. I learned what they did, you know, all the different kinds and what they did. Um, and then I had some ideas about how I wanted that to work. Um, I turned out to be completely wrong about how it was going to work um, because I did my big misunderstanding was about how um, accurate sensors can be, which is not, which is to say, not very. And there's a generally a pretty big latency too in when they operate. So, you know, like think about when you walk up to your house, to your back door and the light automatically comes on because it's a motion sensor. But what is the delay in that happening? You know, how long do you have to wait before you're in the range before the light to come on? And so it's that sort of latency that you have to work with. You have to build into your work with sensors a certain improvisational quality because it's not like a button you know or a, a, a light switch where you turn it on and the light comes on right away it doesn't work as reliably as that it can work like that it's just not reliable you can't depend on it so in a live performance situation it's just not um, it just doesn't make any sense to build that into a piece where it's completely fallible <laughs> In this first execution of the Wonder Suit, did you find yourself having to deal with that, and did it um, did it expand your improvisational skills while performing? Did you did you have that experience in say different <clears throat> different types of latencies per performance, or was it sort of at the same frequency? Well, what I ended up having to do was to completely ditch the way I had planned the piece. Mm -hmm and um, rethink the whole thing. Um, there wasn't time for me to, before the show, to uh, change the way I had done it um, because it was such a tremendous amount of work to just put it together to begin with. You know, you're talking about a 45 minute piece and all these live electronic events are supposed to be happening and that's one thing, but then you've got pre-records. I had this idea that I'd be able to trigger pre-records in advance from one thing to the next using the suit. That doesn't work. Um, there may be other ways to do that, but the suit, the sensors don't, don't work that way. 
Um, they don't work well that way, I should say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I had to really rethink how to think about the suit and what did I want to do with it and design, um, a sound palette, um, that made sense for, for what it does well. Um, so in that way, you know, thinking about the improvisational element, um, it's certainly more intentional uh, than I had ever been before about improvisation. Um, and in that sense, I did learn a tremendous amount about that. Um, did change my way of thinking about how to use that in, a, for instance, a through composed piece. So that's something that's, you know, you're reading every note on the page, right? But then you've got this improvisational element, which is, you've got a plan, but then, you know, within that plan, you just have to go with the flow. Things are going to happen when they happen, you know, oh, I wasn't supposed to have feedback there, but that's cool. What happens if I go with that feedback and, and let's expand on the feedback. Let's use the feedback. Feedback is our friend. <laughs> <laughs> use what you have. Right. Which, which reminds me of, uh, our, our wonderful late poet, Mary Oliver, uh, who just passed last year. And you had done some pieces in and around some of her works. Did you use the wonder suit? for the Mary Oliver piece. I did, and I did several different things. Um, I tried to get permission to use the actual poem, but I didn't get that permission, and she apparently never gave permission to any composer. I, I, she must have had a bad experience <laughs> at some point with somebody, I don't know what. But uh, her agent was very sympathetic, and you know, liked my work a lot, but she was like, mm, no, she's not going to give it to you. So I had to rethink how I went about that. Um, and so I ended up making a recording of myself reading the poem and then using that recording to get pitch and rhythm information to build the piece on. And then because you can't copyright a title, I could use the titles. So um, I used the titles and the score, and that's a that's a like a thirty minute piece for this one poem, and then I did uh, several concerts of improvisations inspired by other poems of hers. So she's been a big influence, I would say. In the near future, are you thinking about any other influences? Uh, well, I'm quite inspired by nature at the moment, mm -hmm. so. Um, so that's, that's got me thinking. And then I also uh, have some, some other ideas about bigger pieces that I want to do that I'm not quite ready to talk about yet. Fair enough. Uh, sometimes when we talk about these pieces that may uh, transpire in the future, they, they, can t they tend to go another route or... Or we, we don't want to jinx them. Right, exactly, right. because I have had that happen before where I like, get all excited about an idea and then I talk about the idea and then, mm -hmm. then, then the idea goes away right. and does something else. Exactly. Um, so I find that I have to nurture and coddle these mm -hmm. ideas and, and, and their very nascent stages, you know, until it's a little bit more secure and uh, 
you know, I don't want to take the baby outside too soon. Right. I was just thinking about that. I'm like, yes, you want to, you know, get the baby, you know, good and healthy and and round before it has its, uh, you know, christening, if you will. Eleanor, thank you so much. Really a pleasure to be here with you. You too. Experience more on this episode's guest, Eleanor Sandresky, including future performances, dates, and project releases at esandresky.com. That's E-S-A-N-D-R-E-S-K-Y dot com. Her album, Strange Energies, will be released by Orange Mountain Music on May 8th, and you can pre-order your copy online at music.apple.com. Eleanor personally wishes to express her deep thanks to all of you who support this endeavor and for your belief in the project and in the music, especially at this time. And I thank you as well for listening and for being here. I'm Mary Edwards, and this is Notes Between Sessions. <laughs>